millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Try Audible Plus free for 30 days. Audible Plus is a brand new all-you-can-listen membership that offers access to thousands of titles, including a vast variety of audiobooks, podcasts, and originals that span genres, lengths, and formats. Access Audible originals, including documentaries, theater, and sleep programs, all made to be heard. Plus, audiobooks, including fan favorites and most-loved genres like mystery and thrillers and motivation. Audible Plus also allows you to tune into podcasts like Conversations on Dance, an exclusive series ad-free. Get Audible Plus now, free for 30 days and just $7.95 a month after that. Or give the gift of Audible this holiday season. To learn more, visit amazon.com slash shop slash conversations on dance or click the link in the show notes. I'm Rebecca King Ferraro. And I'm Michael Sean Breeden. And you're listening to Conversations on Dance. On today's episode of Conversations on Dance, we are joined by Alistair McCauley, esteemed critic and historian for the performing arts. Alistair previously joined us for a deep dive into the history of Balanchine's classic, Serenade. Today, he returns for critical analysis of one of the oldest and most beloved full-lengths in ballet history, Giselle. Alistair will be presenting a seminar on the same subject at the New York Public Library Bruno Walter Auditorium on Friday, December 1st. Tickets are sold out, but a standby line will form 45 minutes before with available seats distributed on a first-come, first-served basis. Alistair, welcome back. Back by popular demand. You know, every, <laughs> <Thank> you. <laughs> every time we have an episode with you, people oh. always say they want more. I think oh. people loved our, our re-record of this, the Serenade episode. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're yeah. always great with suggestions after that about what ballets would make good episodes and so today we're going to focus on Giselle let's talk about Giselle (laughs) Uh, well this is partly an old story and obviously Giselle is an old ballet um as you know I've done at the library um the library for performing dance a series of seminars on individual works and Mm -hmm. our first session on serenade was just about and you're still not pronouncing it the right way Serenade. i know (laughs) it's 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 Uh, just you know (laughs) gotta learn balance said serenade so can you i know uh, we did one on serenade we had already one on sleeping beauty and one on swan lake uh, and then we had a new um, director of the dance division, Linda Murray, who's a wonderful woman. Uh, and I said, look, I can think of nine different ideas for seminars and individual works. You're the new director. Uh, I'll, can you choose or encourage? And not knowing me, she said, oh, of yours, I would choose Giselle. And so we were able to assemble a three-day seminar. Um and people with one person you've often interviewed, Doug Fullington, mm-hmm. was in New York because he's an expert on many aspects of 19th century ballet, as you know. And he and Marion Smith are particularly concentrated on Giselle. They have been the main research assistants and production advisors to Peter Bowl in his Pacific Northwest Giselle, which was, I think, the first important 21st century 
look at how at the 19th century Giselle taking away a lot of the 19th, the 20th century accretions. Um, right. So they were the right people to ask, and they were just in New York at that time. But we brought in a lot of other connoisseurs and experts and looked at films going back to specific in 1932, silent, Margot Fontaine, 1937, silent, uh, Markover in the early 40s, and then looking at sound films like Yolanova with the Bolshoi in 1956. Uh, and then just talked about what Giselle is. Now, normally these seminars at the library then lead within a few months to an event that I present at the library with colleagues if possible. I can't remember why life interrupted me, but I just wasn't able to present that Giselle as a show, so to speak, in the Brunewald mm -hmm. Auditorium within the following year. Um, as you know, I'm now mainly based back in London, um, but the library reminded me that they'd like me to do something, and I suggested that we finally used our Giselle material. Um, I don't know what I meant by that now, because, of course, I've now got into researching Giselle and looked at all the goodies in the library. There are more goodies than I ever knew about, which is so impressive. <laughs> um, in particular, I'm sure I've mentioned this in terms of Serenade and other ballets, there was a wonderful Balletomain nutcase, and perhaps all true Balletomains are nutcases, <laughs> uh, called Victor Jessen. And between the 1940s and 50s, he made it his mission to try to film all the great productions of the day and try to film them silently, but edit them into order. Um, and in some cases, he tried to concentrate on one particular star, like all of his Sleeping Beauty more or less features Margot Fontaine as Aurora. Sometimes as mm -hmm. the Lilac Fairy, you're watching Beryl Grace. Sometimes you're seeing Svetlana Berriosa, but it's always Margot Fontaine. Except, right. for the last, except curiously for the last second when I think you're seeing Maurice Shira. Don't ask me how she got it. <laughs> but he put together, he put together uh, Giselle, just act two, and he was in love with the famous performances by Alicia Markova and Anton Dolan. And they had been legendary from the early 40s. In fact, they'd been doing it in London since the 30s. But in the early 40s, they were in their primes. And they began to film them um, but the productions kept sort of changed the, what's the word, sidetracking him. And so he mm -hmm. also, when you look at the, the library catalog, it just says Markova and Dolin and occasionally some other performers. And at first when I looked at it, it just didn't look very impressive. And there's a lot of the willies and none of the willies, Mirta and the willies are terribly interesting. Only mm -hmm. really this autumn did I start to look carefully and I thought, oh my God. This is footage from the early 50s of Margot Fontaine dancing live with Michael Soames at her most beautiful. We can argue about whether she was at one of nature's Giselles. She doesn't have great elevation, but that's an interesting point to debate. And then I looked at one of the other ones, and I think I thought, well, I think she's in the same Royal Ballet production, but it's not Fontaine, so who is it? Um, I think there's one bit of my Richard alive and really dancing, unlike the Sleeping Beauty film. So you think, oh my God, how interesting to see Maurice Shearer, if it is Maurice Shearer. And I think there's another clip that is probably Violetta Elvin. You know, she was the Bolshoi ballerina who joined the Sadler's Wells Ballet or Royal Ballet straight after the war. So how amazing to have these clips. And mm. then you see and Darlin. And then there's quite a lot of footage from the Ballet Rista Monte Carlo of Alexandra Danilova who simply is not known as Giselle at all. And she only seems to have taken up the role in her mid-40s and in wow. some ways, she looks thoroughly old, but she is Danilova. And when she knows how to make an effect, she certainly does. Mm -hmm. So you often, I don't know how often you've ever watched a ballerina who in some ways is too old for a role, but important. Uh, it's fascinating because you watch some bits thinking, this is electrifying. Oh, well, how embarrassing about that, Arabesque. <laughs> oh, how amazing that, you know. <laughs> uh, and that's what it's like watching Danilova. It might even be that way... Uh, perhaps watching Markova. Markova certainly is not like any Giselle of today. Um, but as far as I can see, Danilova always took class uh, and, of course, was a famous teacher. Markova probably was one of the laziest great ballerinas in history. Um, nobody ever really saw her take class. And she just kept some of her steps in brilliant shape and other ones you just can see the leg got lower and the jumps got lower. Um, but she seems to have worked just particularly on her feet. And just as you're watching on Act 2, thinking, well, I bet she was wonderful 10 years before this live film. 
then suddenly she does the super sirs or the rond de sauter, and you think, oh my God, she can really do this. How beautiful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so right. I'm trying to put together really a compare and contrast program based on all these different Giselles. Mm. We also have Act One of Spesivtseva, who was perhaps the most legendary Giselle before Markovara, perhaps of the whole 20th century. Um, and I don't know how I'm going to shape all this material together. Because there is That's so, a lot. it's a huge amount. You know, I'm on the whole not going to show. I think well, I'm going to show a minimum of Giselles from the last forty years. I think people who come attempted to look for their favorites, like Natalia Osipova or Diana Vishnova or Alina Kajikaro, or forty years ago Natalia Makarova, Gelsi Kirkland, and they're all great. Mm-hmm. And there is footage of them. You can see just about all of them on YouTube, actually. And just for that mm-hmm. reason, I'm going to leave them out, except maybe just to show what, say, with Giselle's Act One variation, I might show Makarova doing it to show how it fits to music and in colour and how we see it now, and then show what it's like when somebody's doing it nearer the original choreography, Mm -hmm. and we'll show maybe Lansky's or Doug Fuddington's reconstruction of it from the steps. And there are some important changes of steps. And then look at what Fontaine and Markova and Spesivitseva were doing, which are all much closer to the notation than the version we now normally see. Mm, right. For example, I mean, I can argue about the opening arabesque of Giselle's variation. The notation isn't quite clear there, but there is evidence going back that it began with the arms on or in fifth position. So she goes, mm-hmm. Uh, and she steps with her mm-hmm. arms around her head, not the usual open first arabesque arms that we often see, which mm-hmm. is but much more striking. And this is something that I've investigated recently with the American-British ballerina Cynthia Harvey, one of your invitees, mm-hmm. um, is the manege at the end of the Act One variation. Normally, mm-hmm. it's just a standard manege of PK turns going round, round, round the stage. Mm-hmm. That's totally brought in by the Kirov and Bolshoi in recent years. Makarova maybe was the first person to do it in the West. Um, what Giselle used to do was a diagonal of very tight turns, uh, going sort of pique on the on the on the on different legs. And it's what when Margot mm-hmm. Fontaine coached Cynthia Harvey, she said it's like a whirlwind of turns. Mm-hmm. But they're tight, they're much harder than the usual PK turns. You're just going down a diagonal, it's much tighter and faster. And when I asked Cynthia Harvey about them, I said, why does it feel more right? And she said, well, it is harder. Uh, And she said, all I can tell you is when you were doing it, I haven't got her words in front of me, you're much into that intoxicated feeling of almost delirious excitement that Giselle is feeling at that point. You're into the the high that will soon crash. Right. Because not long after this variation, she'll find that everything is wrong. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. Um, it was so interesting to take a ballerina through the feeling in the steps, saying, well, how do you feel psychologically about them? Mm-hmm. And you probably can only ask about many ballerinas after they've stopped dancing. That's when they start to think, oh, I realized what I was thinking. I just didn't like to word it when I was performing. Yeah. Since right. when I had such a good time, I'm going to do it with other roles now. Mm-hmm. Right. I. It's, it's just so fun to get into these changes with you. I mean, we've talked about things in Swan Lake that have become drastically different, or of course in Serenade. Um, But what would you think is, uh, what would you think is something that audiences identify with Giselle that present day audiences identify as being an essential part of the ballet um, that absolutely had no business being in there in 1841 would not have been there. Oh, that's interesting. Um, well, I can tell you something that I'm not sure if this is the best answer to a question. I'll probably keep coming back to that very good question. But something I discovered from Doug Fullington uh, that several people of my generation have been watching Giselle longer than I have who just didn't want it to be true. <laughs> <laughs> there is a variation that we now know was added by Petipa, Marius Petipa, probably, no, maybe an earlier choreographer, we're just not sure. Somebody, probably in the 1860s, added a variation in Act Two for Giselle. And it's what we now see that is after Albrecht's big variation, um, Giselle comes running in and pleads with Mirta, saying, please spare him. And if you see a Russian Giselle, she does it with an armful of lilies. 
mm-hmm. uh, wanted to rest on and do it with lilies. Uh, I think originally she just made a beseeching gesture. And then she dances, uh, she's kind of forced into dance by Mirta. And then gradually she goes, her energy changes. And then Stepanov notation, which was made, I think, in uh, 1899, Doug told me, um, there says, she lures him. And this is the moment when Giselle, despite her love for him, is turning into a willy. That is, she is an, uh, somebody who is obliged, but by instinct, to dance him to death. Mm-hmm. And if you think of Giselle, there's that mysterious thing that normally never makes sense. And she goes right over to him and then does a gesture that says, come, 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 beckoning him. Well, normally you think logically, no, you should be encouraging him to lie down and have another. <laughs> Sit down. <laughs> but no, uh-huh. she summons him up. And I remember when I put this into the New York Times, I don't know, eight years ago or something, both Joe Nakachella and Claudia Pierpont said, we just didn't want to hear that. We like to think that Giselle is just dancing selflessly and trying to spare him. We don't like to be reminded of the willy side of Giselle. Mm. Oh. But that probably was there in 1841, so that's not a full answer to your question. I don't mean mm-hmm. uh, the the dance was added after 1841, but that idea that Giselle is part right. she doesn't want to dance for him and uh, dance him to death, and sh- she can't help it. Sometimes she does want to. I feel like there was something that we've talked about with you in the past with this, where maybe at the very end of the ballet has looked different. There's been like different oh, versions. And then maybe there was something too about her like going into the grave. I feel like there's something that we talked about with you. I'm trying You're to quite remember. right. Um, I think we talked about it in 2020. Um, when I first posted my uh, big entry on my website about Giselle, and I now call it 94 questions on about Giselle and 94 answers. Actually, it really should be called 94 questions about Giselle and a thousand answers. <laughs> <laughs> But Doug and Marion are very hot on this, um, that Giselle doesn't end with Giselle simply disappearing back to the grave. Originally, Albert tries to hold on to Giselle, and then just because, I don't know, he's tired, she's fainting, he puts her down on a knoll of grass, or grassy knoll, as we might say, and she just sinks into the ground. Uh, the ground opens up to receive her slowly, and as she goes... Bertilde, his fiance, is seen appearing at the back of the forest. And Giselle minds to him, There's your fiance, you must marry her. I will it. And she's doing that despite his reluctance as she disappears into the ground. And the ballet mm-hmm. ends really with Bertilde coming to him saying, I understand, I will console you, I will look after you. Mm. And um, it's really important that Bertilde is not a bitch. Normally, we see her as the snooty aristocrat. No, that's a 20th century idea. Really, if you think about Giselle, those two women meet, and it's like no other scene, I think, in 19th century ballet where the aristocrat meets the peasant girl, and they have that funny moment when Giselle tugs at Bathilde's dress. Uh, but Bathilde doesn't look snootily at her. She just starts a real conversation. How do you make your dresses? And Giselle says, well, I sew mine. Uh, and then they talk like girls, and they start to talk about what do you like. Giselle says, "I like dancing," and then Bertilde says, "Do you like? Are you in love?" And they do. The fact that these two people from different classes are sharing things—they're more or less the same age—is so touching. And then, if you see a proper production, Giselle then says with her mother, "Would you like to come inside our cottage?" Which is so touching. Mm-hmm. There are some productions, of course, the aristocrats wouldn't go into the cottage. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, so that's all one. one whole twists of the ending of the ballet. Mm-hmm. Another thing is there was, there was more comedy originally in Giselle, and I think Marion is very keen on this, that the act two doesn't begin with the strokes of midnight uh, just to give us a, a spectral Dracula-type atmosphere. Um, you see gamekeepers and huntsmen in the forest, men, who are, and they're playing dice. They're just going to the forest because it's any old place where you enjoy yourselves doing manly-type things. And only Hilary knows what, you know, that there's a ser- more serious alarming side here, and he has come to see Giselle's grave. And they kind of make light of him. And then that suddenly, out of the blue, one or two willies start to appear before midnight, and they all get a bit alarmed. But at the first, they don't take them seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, so part of that scene is entirely comic, um, but a little bit ambiguous. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Could we go back and kind of maybe get an idea of what what was the ballet world like in when Giselle premiered? What 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 were the circumstances uh, under which it became a success initially? Um, you know. Was it groundbreaking or was this what we were looking at generally today and it just happened to be a hit? What were what were some of the um, early it's years of Giselle good, like? It's a really good question. Um, you know, when I first saw Giselle and I saw a cast I would see, do anything to see again now with Lynn Seymour and Rudolf Nureyev, I was a music snob and I wasn't wild about Giselle because I thought all this, da 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 was that music was just too trite. But mm-hmm. there is something in even the music of Giselle that I realized was something of a breakthrough. It's an incredibly seamless score. And if you compare it to many of the later ballets that we so admired by Tchaikovsky and Gladzunov, they are full of cut and dry numbers, numbers where somebody dances and stops dancing and the music stops or starts with that. Giselle has very few such stops and starts. Um you see the Willis dancing and then Giselle and Albrecht dance sort of in front of them. And then the Willis try to separate them. Then Giselle and Albrecht come together again. And then Giselle does a solo out of that. And it's all merging into one musical item. Now, how new that was in 1841, I'm not quite sure. But I feel that Adolf Adam, the composer, was moving into a kind of structural coherence that Wagner would be picking up on quite soon on in opera, trying not to have cut and dry formal numbers like arias in opera, just Mm -hmm. trying to make it much more connected. There's, if you, apart from the peasant padidot, which was not by him, uh, there are only three formal variations with beginnings and ending in the whole of Giselle, and two of them were added after the original Giselle. They weren't part of the original structure. There was another pas de deux in Act One, uh, and that has got the choreography has got lost, but Adam composed mm. a pas de deux that had much more give and take. Giselle, Albrecht, Giselle, Albrecht, but without mm. ending any particular with any formal endings at the end of their solos. Hmm. What do we know about the creation of the story for the ballet, the plot? Well, as made, can you believe it, by a critic? Um, <laughs> <I must> say, <laughs> The famous Théophile Gautier, who was an ultimate romantic esthete, and he had fallen in love with this young, young ballerina, Carlotta Grisi. He just joined uh, Baird in Paris and had joined the Paris Opera that year, 1841, and he was wondering about a vehicle for this woman. And he came home, pulled down a book by his friend, the German writer Heinrich Heine, uh, and it was a book on Germany, and it was full of legends. And there's one particular legend, which is of the Villiers. And so Gautier suddenly thought, oh, what a great subject for dancing. The legend is about these spirits who rise from the grave in forests at midnight and dance men to death. Um, Now, there had been other ballets from the 1780s onwards which took dancing as a narrative subject matter, but they'd all been comic. I don't think there'd be many of them. I think this is the first ballet that takes dance itself and makes it a narrative theme that is tragic and serious. Mm. Uh, Giselle is dancing. You've all seen it. Giselle is dancing with her girlfriends and with Albrecht, and her mother comes out and says, ooh, I'm worried about all this dancing. Uh, Mm -hmm. And Giselle just can't be stopped from dancing. It's what she loves. And normally we see a mime scene, and not normally enough of the mime scene because people tend to dilute it, but there's a mime in which Giselle is a little frightened by what her mother says about you shouldn't dance and so forth. Actually, in the original, uh, it's quite clear on the music. The music is very expressive. Giselle just laughs it away and says, oh, I don't believe these wives, old wives' tales, which when Bertha, the mother, talks about the willies. Uh, no, no, I'm not. I don't believe all that rubbish. Mm. Uh, so she's going to go on dancing. That's what she lives for. But her mother is right that, that if you dance like that, there is the danger you will uh, love and dance will connect the wrong ways and you will die young and you will rise from the grave. Mm. I think behind all of that, there is an older myth and I can't prove it, but there is a famous myth which Lincoln Kirstein wrote about in his book, Dance, a Short History in 1934. Other people have too. It's now been resurrected in a number of recent 21st books, including um, a wonderful 
novel called The Dance Tree, which I can't remember the author of right now, but it came out in Britain, I think, in 2021. And it's an old novel about dance mania in the Rhineland, which was a historical phenomenon that at several points in the Middle Ages, uh, people, especially women, got intoxicated by dancing and they danced for not hours, but days on end until they started to drop dead, their feet were bleeding, and in some cases they were put into group graves. And nobody can explain this kind of mania that happened. On them. And it, the most famous was in Strasbourg in, I think, the early 1500s, but there are other cases of this. And I think it connects to the medieval belief of the dance of death, that death itself swept people up, like the Pied Piper of Hamelin. You know, mm-hmm. uh, um, so I think Giselle connects to all of this. Mm-hmm. Draws on deep I th- right. I, it's so funny. I don't know. You you didn't post about this recently. I did you because I just read about it. It must have been maybe it was something Halloween related. But I literally just read about this. I had never heard of it. And in the Strasbourg situation, um, that you know, it was like I don't dozens think I, of. I've been dying to because I just finished this novel, The Dance Tree, about a month ago, and I think there's so much to say, but I don't think I've yet posted. No. <laughs> yeah, I, it's so it's so wild, and um, yeah, the, I, the novel suggests that actually the reason why these uh, women uh, got into dance mania because. Really, it was a release, and in some ways a joyous release, from the terrible constrictions of the Christian church, where women in particular were obliged to be conformist and to do uh, whatever they were told and not given any freedom whatsoever. Mm. And it, you know, it's just the time, of course, that Protestantism would soon affect the church anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, dance mania comes for the same reasons. I can't, but this is a theory. We can't quite prove it. Hmm. Let's talk a little bit about um, Giselle's influence, both immediately after its premiere and, you know, up until the present day. The the premiere was a hit, but uh, did you start to see it impacting the works of other choreographers or dancers at the time? What was what was its influence around then? Well, it was a hit. And it had a secret. I mentioned Gautier. He merely thought up the story, and he only really thought up the story for Act Two. And he handed it over to somebody who was a professional writer of scenarios, and that was Jules Vernoy de Vernois de Saint-Georges. And he wrote other ballets too. And then they brought in the composer who we mentioned, Adolphe Adam. Uh, but Carlotta Grisi had an um, important lover at the time, Jules Perrault, who had done some choreography for the previous five, six years, but it was in the 1840s that his career took off. And he wasn't named in the original Giselle because he wasn't yet on contract to the Paris Opera. But the next year, he took Greasy and Giselle to London, and it was a great hit there. And he also presented the other one of the other great romantic ballerinas, Fanny Elsler, in it. And of course, she presented it with more drama and more made more of the mad scene, more tragedy. Uh, she also did it in Russia. Um, then Perrault's own career took off, and he made a ballet that we, we unfortunately almost never see now. The Bolshoi has done it. I once saw it with what was then the Mali Ballet, and now the Mikhailovsky Ballet, Esmeralda. And Esmeralda, which I think is 1844, is another vehicle for Grisi. And one of Grisi's particular gifts that made her different from some other romantic ballerinas was that she seemed to dance for dance's sake. And this Perrault had enough skill to realize that's a great narrative thing. So Esmeralda is a professional dancer. She's a gypsy who dances for people's entertainment. She has four different men in love with her for different reasons, only one of whom she is in love with, but she, guess what? She marries another just to save his life. It's a very complicated and fabulous story. Uh, And in one of the great scenes, uh, she comes running in to with this man who's just become her husband, though she doesn't really love him. And she finds, this is like a twist on Giselle, that she's being forced to dance professionally at the betrothal of her own fiancé. No, no, sorry, not her own fiancé, the man she loves. Mm. She loves, right. Um, wow. And it's very, of course, like Bayadere. And Petipa would take this idea and put it into Bayadere 30 years later. 
But the Russians danced both Esmeralda and Bayadere. There was a nice difference between them, and they danced Giselle as well. But mm-hmm. really, those should be seen as a trio. They all have the idea of dancing tragically dis- because it's your profession and it's your passion, but also because though your heart is breaking, you must go on dancing. Mm. Giselle, Esmeralda, Bayadere. Mm. Mm. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Can we talk a little bit about the music um, a little bit more in depth? I'm curious to know kind of what that process looked like and how much collaboration there maybe was. Well, I as far as we can tell, Adam was working fairly fast and occasionally he he used, I think it's one bit where he used from an earlier ballet, um, but he also composed more than was required by the premiere. Greasy got a slight injury. Um, she danced on her birthday. I'm trying to think, was she 21 years old? I forget. Oh, wow. mm-hmm. And they had to leave out some of the music for her in Act One. Um mm-hmm. He was a brilliant professional. He also um, made ba- operas as well as ballets. And he went on into the 50s and 60s composing. Um, the more you analyze the score, and Mansky was very struck by this when he staged it for the Bolshoi in 2019 and then reworked it for the United Ukrainian Ballet last year, uh, that almost every moment in the score, at least in Adam's music for the score, has a dramatic reason for it. Mm. And one of the great rows you can get into in Giselle is mm-hmm. how does Giselle die? And as you know, there are three possible different reasons why she might die. She may dance, die because she's been dancing too much, which is what her mother warned. Mm-hmm. Uh, she may die because she plays, picks up that sword in the mad scene and drives it into her heart. And some Giselles have definitely made that crucial. It was very important to Lynn Seymour that she committed suicide. Mm-hmm. But Ratmansky points out there's just no moment when you hear her stabbing herself mm-hmm. or anything like that. Everything else, particularly the mad scene, is so clear moment for moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and really, he says, if you listen to the score, it's just suggesting that she, in her rather beautiful and sad mad scene, uh, that her heart just breaks. Mm-hmm. Drives through this wild intensity of different emotions, and then it's just mm-hmm. too much. Mm-hmm. Right. Interesting. You know, the the mad scene is always something that I find really interesting. It's it's a hard arc to pull off. I, I forget who said. Maybe it was maybe Gelsey says in her book or something that you like from the second that her Giselle came out, she needed you to know that this was someone that was capable of going crazy, hmm. <laughs> you know, because it could be too, you know, Giselle is also the life of the party. Everyone loves her. She's the favorite peasant of the village. So how do we make that work? How How is it that we can buy the scene? Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's such a good question. I don't know uh, of the Giselles you've seen, but there are some Giselles who play Giselles so quiet, uh, so shyly and fragile. Mm-hmm passively that it drives marion smith nuts because all the evidence it's just as you say she's the life of the party she's the most outgoing person in the village and very much loved mm-hmm. um, outgoing she is a bit shy to be sure when she's first alone with albrecht and there is all right. that leading up to the daisy but that's just maidenly modesty um but she's also very happy with him when she's in the dance movie she says please dance with me she's not fending him away Mm-hmm. I love this mind gesture that I 
you will see when he when she suddenly looks straight into his eyes and Albrecht being an aristocrat puts his hand on his heart and does that big up gesture saying I swear I love you mm-hmm. and down his arm and I think Riddish is saying that's not how we do it in the village that's mm-hmm. not how we do it. and mm-hmm. she goes uh-huh. and picks the petals of the daisy mm-hmm. and the daisy in a way tells the truth right. but is how much Albrecht is or isn't in love with there is is a lovely ambiguity of the story. Every Albrecht can make his own choice. To some degree, he is deeply in love with her, but perhaps only realizes how much in love with her he is in Act Two, when he is also now suffused with remorse for having caused her death. It's so interesting when we're talking about the different people who dance dance these roles. You know, they really have such an opportunity to put their own spin on it to really create the story for themselves, even within the constraints of the ballet. But I wonder, as you're watching all these videos, you've really done this deep dive. Is there one interpretation of Giselle and Albrecht in particular that you feel like are, for you, like the ultimate? (laughs) That's such a neat question, and I don't have a neat answer. I think (laughs) It's too many, probably. Well, I think there have been two points in my life where I saw a whole series of great Giselles in the same month or so. Mm. For example, in 1977, uh, before I was even a critic, London had Natalia Makhareva and Eva Evdokimova, both dancing it with Rudolf Nureyev, doing a whole week of performances. And Makhareva was, in some ways, the most glamorous and... uh, ethereal and spiritual ballerina of the period. But Eva Evdokimo had an even more billowy quality, and some people found her even more perfect for romantic roles with the lightness of Giselle. Mm. Uh, it was certainly a luxurious contrast. Then we had ABT came to London. Makarov announced it now with Boryshnikov. Then we had Cynthia Gregory and Fernando Bajones, who were two of the greatest technicians you could ever see, but really knew that Giselle wasn't just about technique. And then we got Gus Kirkland doing it also with Boryshnikov. And with that yeah. happened those three points in two days uh and galsi really the ultimate fragile giselle and you just you know you loved her and you loved her fragility and then this extraordinary luminous spectral quality that developed in act two i wish i'd seen her more than once that was then and i wish i remembered my memories so to speak better from all those years ago but then in recent years and michael you may have seen at least one of these interpretations interpretations. Uh, ABT, I think three years running, uh, presented Alina Kodjikaru, uh, Diana Vishnova, and Natalia Osipova. And I just remember thinking, this is a start. Oh, let me go back to 1977. After I'd seen that luxury, four or five Giselles, then I watched the Turing Royal Ballet, Sadler's Wells Royal Ballet, as it was then. It's now Birmingham Royal Ballet. And an almost forgotten dancer called Galina Samsova did the greatest act one I've ever seen. And you just, just had a sheer wow. touching acting. It was the greatest mad scene I've ever seen. Wow. Just heart, in you know, your heart was beating with every moment. And I believe it was the first one she had done with the company of that role. And when the curtain came down, apparently all the dancers just gazed and started to burst into applause. They couldn't believe how touching and how real they had made it. Wow. In a way, that taught me Giselle is just so open to different ways of doing it. Um, then with, with Kodjukaro, Osipova, Vishnova, they did it together, so to speak, in a weekend of performances, I think in, was it 2011, 2012, and 2013? I might have got those years wrong, um, but just around there. I think my favourite between the three changed each year. One year was Kodjukaro, who was the most touchingly fragile, adorable, winning. She just caught your heart from the moment she came out of the cottage door and never let go of it. Mm. Um, The one who had just stormed New York before I moved there for the Times job in 2005 was Diana Vishnova, uh, and said, this is the ultimate Giselle. When I was watching her in 2007, 2000, whenever, I wasn't yet smitten with her. When in those years when she was dancing at the same time as Osipova and Kajikaru, I thought, well, she's very, very beautiful, but, um, you know, I might love her more in other contexts. But the last year, I remember thinking, oh, my God, where she takes off in Act 2, that to me became then the ultimate Giselle. Mm-hmm. But meanwhile, 
every, I think everyone else who watched Osipova, particularly in her ABT debut, which was it, 2009, there were individual performances, and I don't think it happens every time with Osipova at all. Uh, when she's right, she's so on, she's so brilliantly focused in every moment, and of course she has electrifying elevation, hmm. um, which she makes spiritual in Act 2. So right. that, for many people, was the definitive Shazal of our time. But I couldn't quite call it definitive on that, except that she she refocused the ballet in a brilliant way that I had not known when she, at her debut. Mm. Uh, right. And she I, had a fabulous partnership with David Hallberg, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, def- I saw them do it at least tw- over the course of two years. I may, may have seen it three years running. I remember one of them had an injury at one point that they had to pull out of, unfortunately. But, I mean, I just thought it was the most incredible thing I had ever seen. And I even forgave her for something that I thought, um, you know, it would, would bother me otherwise. But her her first variation in the second act, you know, when you come out with it, like the series of very fast um, hops with without spotting. So it's difficult because you come out of that spotting Yes, yes, hops and nervous, yeah. And then you come out of that and you're dizzy, and then you do this series of, what, Cisson Assemblé, like, so mm-hmm. jumping. So you have the very fast turning, and then you're jumping. She had the conductor distort it, the music, like, beyond recognition. So, like, you know, the very, it was so fast. Like, that fast. They just, like, nonstop, and then she goes to the corner so that she can jump with her incredible elevation, and it's but it was like you just didn't care because it was absolutely thrilling seeing her in both modes and it didn't somehow didn't take you out of the experience i'm happy to tell you that you're in good company in the musical point you've just made um balancing said exactly the same about alicia markova he had worked with her yet marta by the time she became a big star with American Ballet Theatre doing Giselle every year. Um, he hated how she pulled about the music, speeding up some bits and speeding down others. <laughs> That's so funny. I love it. I think uh, resisted. He, he once, I think he supervised Giselle more than once. He did it both at American Ballet Theatre briefly and then in Paris. Um, but generally he resisted what Giselle did to dancers because they became precious. They started to think that they were sacrosanct and divine and so forth, and they weren't good ensemble dancers. Yeah. We may have already covered this, so stop me. But I'm just wondering, is there something specific that's been completely lost over time with Giselle? Like, was there any additional moments or part of the story that we've just completely... That's completely vanished. Well, that's I, that, the answer. Probably depends on the production you're watching. Right. I mean, there was a tradition, perhaps particularly from the Russians, not in Yolanda, but later on, of emphasizing the self-sacrificial quality of uh, Giselle, and they would always play it with a very their neck almost elongated. The Russian Giselles, and with the head slightly leaning forwards, as if you know Giselle is the victim from the beginning. That. And so many Giselles were like that, and it's kind of maddening if you prefer your Giselle to be vital. Um, You the Giselle tradition where, as you said so well, she can be the life and soul of the party, but that isn't how it's always played. I'm nuts angry at the moment because the Royal Ballet has put in this program that Giselle kills herself with a sword, and that's absolutely not. I can see why Peter Wright, the director of the production, thinks that one historian said that. And Gautier himself, after the premiere, sometimes referred to Giselle killing herself. But actually, at the beginning, all the original scenarios and the score make quite clear she dies, I think, of a broken heart. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Gautier was very good at advising his own ballets in Afterthought. And he loved almost some of his reviews are like fantasies on rotted scene rather than accurate reporting. Mm-hmm. I just with your knowledge, you know it from the Miami production, and you know it from American Ballet Theatre. Mm-hmm. Yes, have you, so that, that's primarily yeah. Mm-hmm. You haven't been able to see the Doug and Marion Peter Bowl production in uh, Pacific North. No. Uh, did you watch on film Ratmanskis? I haven't I saw seen part, it. Either. I've seen parts of it. Yes. I mean, he's got the luxury. I of people. You can actually catch, I think, two different casts. 
when the production was new in 2019, the Bozhe. I don't know if it has been done since, you know, since Ukraine, since Ratmansky has become persona non grata in Russia. Right. But we, the, the production in its essence is the same as he now has given to the Ukra- United Ukrainian ballet. Um, but I will say the Bolshoi had particularly beautiful designs, which he hasn't yet been able to reproduce. Right. Right. At what point in history did this ballet become a sort of benchmark for star dancers? Like, you know, they had to conquer these roles in order, you know, the way that so many dancers now, of course, feel like that. It's, one of the ballets that is really the pinnacle of classical achievement. Um, I think it probably happened with Markova. Markova made her debut in 1934. She satisfied people who had seen the great Spesivtseva in London just two years before. Uh, and she identified herself with the role. And though she did pull the music around, we gather from Balanchine, uh, she just, it became the role that she could do best. And though her technique in some ways diminished, the jumps she could still do were extraordinary and her quality of lightness. Mm-hmm. And she went on doing it till the late 50s um, and did it all around the world where she could. So that became a, a, a kind of, what's the word, yardstick for ballerinadom. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Right. In terms of lightness, Margot Fontaine was wrong for it, but she was so right for the acting, for the intensity of Giselle's joy in life that she threw herself in. And age 17 made a huge sensation in London. Um, and I hope we can show um, at the library on December the 1st the live footage of her dancing. Now, she couldn't do the hops on point in those days. She did later on in her career and went on dancing Giselle till she was 50. In age 17, she actually does most of the hops in fifth position. It's on both, there's hop, 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 fifth, and I think she does one or two on single points and then goes back to fifth. Mm-hmm. It's actually very works. I would advise any young, fragile Giselle with weak feet to work that way. Anyway. Um, <laughs> and, and then I think maybe when the Bolshoi came and Yulanova did her extraordinary Giselle, which was so spontaneous, so lacking in ballerina mannerism and so much connected with the Stanislavski tradition of losing yourself in a role. Mm-hmm. Then, oh my God, Giselle is larger than we ever realized. There's, you can do it so right. many different ways. Mm. So I think for some people, the greatest test of a ballerina, um, it drives me nuts because you, you two and I love the Balanchine repertory. In 2007, I wrote a piece about Kira Nichols, who I truly thought at that time was the greatest dancer, classical dancer in the world uh, at the point of her retirement. And I got a reader writing in saying, she hasn't danced Giselle, she can't be a ballerina. I'm wondering, I'm just thinking as I'm hearing about you doing this presentation, I'm thinking that if I were a dancer who danced Giselle or was going to be dancing Giselle, that I would certainly want to be there to hear all of this great and see all this footage that you've unearthed. Thank you. Well, I, I think one or two dancers from ABT and New York City Ballet will be coming. It'll be fun with the ABT ones who know their Giselle and City Ballet ones who never get to dance Giselle. Right. Um, right. And if you've ever seen it, there's a documentary that Anton Dolan made um, in his probably in his seventies, he was asked to coach Patty McBride and Helgi Tomasson in Giselle, and because he had most of the great Giselles of the century, uh, he included footage of him visiting a Spesivtseva when she was in her home at, towards the twilight of her life. He interviews Alicia Markova. He goes to Yvette Chauvere. He gets Galina Yulanova. Uh, Carla Fracci, I think Natalia Makarova. It's amazing to see this galaxy of ballerinas all talking about the role. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what Adam McBride or Helgi Tomasson would have said they took from it, but uh, you very much have the feeling that though they're important dancers, they are the students in this situation. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> yeah. Wow, that's fascinating. I need to see that. That's that's it, incredible. Fontaine refused to contribute. And I think politely she just said, I don't regard myself as a great Giselle. Now, I, oh. <laughs> I, don't, I don't believe she meant that. I think she just didn't want to be in a competition-type situation. Hmm. Right, right. Can we actually, can we go back? I was just thinking about um, when you were talking about, I guess, Giselle finding popularity in other countries or other cities. Um, but I'm thinking, was when it was at 
when it was shown in London, is that the whole company with the company tour at that point? Because there is no formal classical ballet in London at that point, right? Or how how is this working? You know, how does the ballet? So what year you mean? But in the year forty two or something. 1842, yes, the year after it was a kind of provisional ballet company at Her Majesty's Theatre in okay. London. We don't know much about the supporting dancers, but uh, there was money. Uh, it, was, it was perhaps the most prestigious London theatre. And so most years they could present Marie Taglioni, Fanny Elsler, Fanny Cerito, Carlotta Grisi, and Lucille Grand, which is why. In 1844-45, they presented that famous Padacatra where four star romantic ballerinas all danced together. So there was a um, kind of a company. Whether you and I could bear to look at the corps de ballet, I wonder. But <laughs> yeah. And it is, I think, right. that, that London Giselle is one of the great research opportunities that I hope somebody will go into. We know about it from either Guest's book, The Romantic Ballet in London, but I don't think that anybody's looked up the score or any evidence for how the story was told in programmes. I'm sure there's much more for the right historian to find out. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's when interesting to me. Specifics of her danced it in London in 1932, they put it on in a fairly tiny theatre, the Savoy. Uh, now, there were dancers there, probably at different levels. Uh, all of them are doing it for the first time, and probably none of them had ever seen it before. And if you look at the silent footage, and you can see some of it on YouTube, um, it's kind of hilarious when you look at the background people, because they honestly look as if they've never seen Giselle before. They don't know how to... Uh, <laughs> the mother looks as if she's played by a man, and maybe she was, because Enrico Giacchetti played the mother in Russia, so maybe somebody is taking that role in London. I don't know. Frederick Ashton is playing Hilarion. You can't recognize him because there's so much makeup and beard and so forth. Um, now there's a certain tradition for how, when Giselle goes mad, for how the crowd moves around her and the people come and, you know, as she moves across the stage, everybody rushes around her or stays away from her. None of that was clear in 1932. Oh, interesting. Uh, right. They give specifics of a much more space. She's also, by the way, wearing a short dress that ends way above the knee. Oh. Um, Candle. <laughs> so there just wasn't that tradition of how to do it. Indeed, Pavlova, who had done it for Pertipa in Russia, she kept experimenting. She loved doing Giselle in the West. And at one point she did it in Isadora Duncan draperies. Hmm. Just loose. Wow. Right, the whole body coming to calf length but none of the usual waist-type things. Hmm. So I think hmm. only maybe with Markova in 1934 that people started to go back to the period look of Giselle in a sort of gently corseted dress that ends beneath the knee. Oh, so are there you any know, other things about the costuming that has really evolved? Like that, that, That's obviously so iconic now, what Giselle wears, especially in the first act. I wonder if there I anything you else? Know, I hope you know about Nijinsky's underwear. Do you not know that? Yeah. <laughs> no. This is one of the great scandals of dance history. Uh, the tradition was, at least in Russia and in quite a lot of countries, that the man dressed in, I think, what are called hose, which are kind of short lederhosen type things over the groin, so mm. the, mm-hmm. the offending contours of the male anatomy. And now that probably got dropped in other countries during the 19th century. I'm not, I haven't done proper research into this. Uh, but it certainly was dispensed with in quite a lot of ballets that the Diaghilev company presented in 1909 in the West. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did Giselle in 1910 with Nijinsky in wonderful new designs by Alexandre Benoit. Um, then after this, Nijinsky went back to Russia and danced his first Albrecht there in the presence of the Tsar's mother. Uh, and he wore his costume without these hose over the the groin, uh, as he had in Paris. And we don't really quite know. There were politics involved. Uh, but anyway, he was certainly told that he was offending the Dowager Empress. There's some evidence she wasn't remote shocked, actually. Um, <laughs> but but the, there was always court scandal around, uh, and not just the theatre scandal around. And if then, I think he went on again without the hose for Act Two. 
and shortly after that, he was sacked from the staff of the Imperial Theatre for offending the Daja Empress. Now, that may all have been machinated because it was very useful to Diaghilev. Diaghilev, at that, up to that point, was only hiring dancers for a few weeks or months at a time when he took them to the West. Uh, suddenly, with Nijinsky at a, a loose end, he could sign Nijinsky up full time around the year, and then other Russians thought, oh, well, if we've got Nijinsky, we've, we're, we're in the money. We can go where he goes. And they all signed up, some right. of them, full time. And it was only great dancers like Kasavina who kind of signed special contracts that I would spend some of my year in St. Petersburg, but I come to uh, the West to dance with Diaghilev when I can. Mm. All to do with underwear, you see. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I have to add one more question. Just for all the willies out there, for the Airbus <laughs> cops across the stage, what do we know about how high our back leg is? Is it the height of our head up nice and high, or is it kind of like ironing board flat originally? What do we think? Um, it's a very nice question, and I'm not quite sure that they were there in 1841. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I rest my case. They're certainly, but they're part of the Russian text, and the Russians probably didn't raise their legs high in the 19th century. Uh, I myself like a 19 degrees leg, generally, as a rule. Perfect. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, the question to me isn't the how high the back leg goes, because usually it is around 90 degrees, and lots of companies still do it to 90 degrees. The question really is the upper body. Uh, is Are we seeing wheelies who do it in first arabesque, looking ahead with their arms extended and looking above the arm as they hop forwards into space? Mm -hmm. I used to, with the heads more down, and they're hopping, looking somewhat forward but diagonally the emphasis is that they are dancing on the graves mm -hmm. that they are downward and it has a whole different emphasis now Ratmansky disagrees with me I think Doug and Marion may agree with me but don't quote me I was talking about Giselle all places in Phoenix Arizona this January with Eve Anderson and I just saw them do they showed some of the wheelies there and I said oh this is a company that still has the downward heps, head and the hops I think that's how it should be but almost no company other than Arizona that I know of dances it that way I can tell you 40 years ago both the Royal and ABT dances it danced it with the heads down now the fashion is city ballet did it with the heads down and a high high I mean, leg uh, i was gonna say yeah <laughs> i remember the paint oh and very slow too oh yeah. <laughs> ouch is, ouch and i would love to consult doug about how he sees the speed and ratmansky both those men really looked into the scores in detail that would be interesting to know too, because I think that's that could be it can be com two completely different things just from the music too, right? The speed in that moment. Yeah. And I think also whether you jump, the hops go onto the beat or after the beat, that creates a different drama. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah, really? of course. Maybe just for our last question, we could kind of identify why 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 we think um Giselle has been such a long lasting hit and why how it still resonates with audiences of today. Well, of the period ballets, of the 19th century ballets, it really has the most wonderfully coherent plot. And you have Act One alone can seem a complete ballet, just because any ballet that ends mm -hmm. that scene and then death, you know, your heart is in your mouth. Mm -hmm. And it's mm -hmm. Giselle in the moment, and that is so touching. Um, I hope you've seen Giselle was performances when you're like that, that I certainly have. Mm -hmm. And then you twist in Act Two, and, of course, the strange, ambiguous language of the willies, these dance creatures from the grave who dance men to death, it's both beautiful and sinister. Uh, and that takes dance itself into a whole new dimension in Act Two. Um, so uh, you know, it's, a, it's a wonderful double-pronged story. You, you, you think Act One is enough, but no, it's not remotely. And this Kathy Heathcliff idea of love beyond the grave is so beautifully expressed. Mm. Um, yeah. The twist that A, Albrecht probably really wants to die. Uh, I think that's definitely what Gautier intended. He wants to die. He wants to join her in death. And then that she is a willy and she partly wants to lure him towards his death, though she the good side of her keeps surfacing and she does mm -hmm. want to save him. Um, you, you, so, it's, so it's a suspense ballet right throughout Act 1 and 2. You're sitting there thinking, what's going to happen next? What's, oh, my God, is that happening? Oh, my God, oh, my God. Twist, mm -hmm. twist. 
You don't really watch Swan Lake Sleeping Beauty Nutcracker ever quite like that. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Well, thank you, Alistair, so much for your time as always. Be brainstorming about the next ballet we can talk about because our listeners just love hearing these deep dives. So thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you, Alistair. Conversations on Dance is part of the ACAST Creator Network. For more information, visit conversationsondancepod.com.